Today I continue in the series that I have been in over the past several weeks now. It's a series, as you recall, I've named Grace the Undiluted Gospel. And today I'm going to add the fifth message to this series. It's a message that I've entitled, God Has Made Clean. And what I want you to see through the message today is this. Believers are not the ones who keep themselves clean. We are not the ones who keep ourselves pure. We are not the ones who keep ourselves holy or righteous or washed. We are as clean and pure and righteous and holy and washed and cleansed as we are ever going to be. In Christ, there is no bad news, only the undiluted gospel. In Christ, our sins have not just been diluted, they have been subjugated by the blood of Jesus, and they have been taken away once for all. Amen? We live in a world of infectious disease. Computers become infected with viruses. People become contaminated with disease. Bank accounts become compromised. Passwords get hacked. Reputations get tarnished. Identity can be stolen. Our water supplies can become polluted. Governmental officials, many are corrupted. Friends, even the message from our pulpits can be somewhat infected also. And please hear my heart on this. You know I've told you before I have a heart for the church, I have a heart for pastors, but the message can be infected as well. You say, how do you ask? And I've said it before, but I want to say it again. By ministering a diluted gospel. In case you have not sat under any of these messages and you say, well, what do you mean by a diluted gospel? What is a diluted gospel? Well, first of all, I think we have to define the word gospel so that we know what we're talking about is being diluted. The biblical definition of the word gospel is what? Good news, right? Therefore, to dilute good news, you have to mix in bad news with it. That's the only thing that can dilute good news. You cannot dilute good news by adding more good news, can you? No. So it's when we add this mixture of bad news, okay news, semi-okay news, whatever it may be, and we mix that with the good news, then what we've done is we've diluted the gospel in a sense. For the first 15 years of my Christianity, I was as sincere as I could be in everything I did. I worked like a hound dog for the church, and I loved every minute of it. I've worked in just about every single ministry you can think of, and I amened every preacher that came along, just assuming that everything they said was correct. And I found out 15 years into the journey, a lot of stuff you're saying is correct, but it seems to me like we got the foundation a little off. We got the foundation skewed. And so we were mixing in performance, and we were mixing in conditionalities. We were mixing things in with the gospel, and guess what it does? It dilutes the gospel. It dilutes the appeal of the gospel. I have a much greater honor and respect for the gospel of grace than I ever have in my entire life because I've had this new revelation over the last 10 years. Now, I think it's bad news if believers are the ones who are responsible to keep themselves pure, holy, and righteous. And because I know that self-improvement is taught within the church today, that trying to keep yourself pure, holy, and righteous would fall under the category of bad news. Come on, guys. You've been with me, right? Every time you try to perform your very best, you find out it's not good enough. You see, I can't keep myself pure, holy, and righteous. By the way, neither can you. You can't keep yourself pure. You can't keep yourself holy and righteous in every single thought, every single action. You can't keep yourself that way. I think it's bad news if we have to earn the Father's love and if we have to earn the Father's graces. I mean... Ask yourself the question, how good would you have to be to get the Father to applaud for you? To catch you in that Kodak moment and go, oh, I saw that, yay! 
<laughs> How good would you have to be to get the Father to say, well done! How good would you have to be to get the Father to declare that He is pleased with us? Well, we'd have to be perfect. And that's my point. The Scriptures tell us that by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are made holy. That is Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. Now don't fight with me about this thing. I didn't write it. I do believe it. By one sacrifice, He has made perfect. How long? Forever. Those who are made holy. Who's made holy? You, me. How did we get made holy? By Jesus' body on the tree. That's Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. So by His one sacrifice, we have been made perfect. The problem we have is, though, is we think about our actions. We think about our behavior. We think about our attitudes. We think about the indifferences that we have with our brothers and sisters. And we go, oh, well, there's no way I could be perfect. You're perfect where it counts. You're perfect in your spirit. There's nothing there that you can do to improve upon that. Quit trying. The church has not separated the spirit from the soul very well. And that's where you run into trouble. So stop trying so hard to please daddy. Let it just be an organic effect that it just happens naturally. Look, he's already pleased with you. He's already delighted with you. Does that mean he cheerleads for you for every single thing you do? No. So I think there are times, be honest with yourself, that the father sees you up to something, sees you think of something, and just goes, ah, son, I still love you. Let's just move on in life, though. Come on, come on, you can do better. I'll help you do better. The Scriptures say He dances with us. The Scriptures say that He sings over us. He speaks His promises over us. He's very active in our lives. I like to say it like this again. He's not a spectator. He's involved. He would be more like the guy in the pit crew, right? That every time you roll in there, that you need something done, it's him that's in there, that's changing your tires and tuning you up and filling you up, right? He's very involved in our lives. I think it's bad news. In fact, I think it's terrible news if we have to obey all of the old covenant commandments in order to be clean or to remain in Christ. Now, there are people that will fight you tooth and nail on that statement. But it's true. I mean, think about it. If you have to obey all the Jewish commandments, 613 of them, in order to be pleasing to the Father, in order to be clean as a person, in order to remain in Christ. You know, I looked them up the other day. I just Googled 613 Jewish commandments. The list is right there. They've taken them right out of the Bible. And you just read until the cows come home and you go, really? You got to do all that? I mean, if you want to be under a system like that, I got to ask you a question. What happens the moment you break one of those 613 Jewish laws? And the Ten Commandments are incorporated in there, right? You say, well, I don't usually break those commandments. None of them. Really? When's the last time you had bacon? Jews don't eat pork. When's the last time you had shellfish? You know, stuff like crab and shrimp and lobster. They don't eat those either. You couldn't have rabbit. It chews the cud, but it doesn't have the split hook. It's very complicated, friends. And so what happens to you when you break one of those commandments? One of the commandments actually says you are to appoint judges. And we know that we look back to the Bible, we can see how the judges were appointed. You are to appoint judges. And that literally means government officials. Yet 30 to 40% of the church does not vote at all. So are they breaking that law? Yes, if they're under the old covenant. But we're not under the old covenant. Otherwise, you'd be in constant sin in those situations. 30 to 40% of the church does not vote. You know why? Because they believe in a sovereign grace that God is going to have His way no matter what you do. 
And look, these are wonderful people. It just, this is their doctrinal belief system. This is their foundation that's been laid. How many of you know the scriptures also tell us that we are to occupy until he comes? And that means we are to be involved in spiritual matters. We are to be involved in governmental matters. Let me ask you a question. With all that in mind, all those many opportunities to just blow it, to sin like crazy, does God provide us with erasers and bottles of whiteout? No. It's not erasers that erase, nor is it the whiteout that covers our sins. It's Jesus who erases and blots out our sin as far as the east is from the west, that the times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. He blots them out, friends. They don't exist. Back in the days when we used to do whiteout, I put whiteout on something. You know what I found out? You could still scratch the dried whiteout off later and still see what you wrote there. It's a primitive way of doing business, friends. It really was. Someone sent you something with whiteout, you just go, hmm, I wonder what they wanted to say. Get your little knife out and start scratching it. <laughs> in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, we find these words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I don't know of a scripture that's probably been used more. This has probably been used as much as John 3.16. Now, I'm going to just encourage you, maybe just take your zipper on your lip and you just might want to close it for a second here. Otherwise, you might blurt out an answer that's not going to be congruent with the way I'm about to preach. Okay? All right. So it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How many of you have heard this scripture before? Come on. Every single person in here, right? Yeah. Jeff and Cindy haven't heard that. They spent too much time in Haiti. <laughs> I'm just messing with Think about this now. Here's the Apostle John. He's writing. Now, it seems pretty straightforward. He says, if we confess our sins, he, that's God, is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, this is the part where the zipper might come in handy. Let me ask you a question. It's kind of rhetorical here. Is confession required every time we sin? No. Now, I feel like I'm hearing fingernails on the chalkboard right about now coming down. <laughs> that just grated against my doctrine and that just rubbed me wrong. Is confession required every time we sin? The answer is no. You would be in the confession business and would have nothing better to do, to be honest with you. Confession is not required every time we sin. The confession that the Apostle John wrote about in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 is the confession that is required to enter into salvation. It's a one-time cleansing of all unrighteousness. After this salvation has come, sin is no longer our master. We are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. The Apostle John is writing this to the agnostics. These are the unbelievers that he's writing to, the people who say we have no sin. And that's why he said, if we confess our sins, you're telling me you don't have any, I'm telling you you do. And if you'll come into agreement with me and you will confess your sins, he said, God will be faithful. God will be just to forgive you of all your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Friends, we are not in the sin management business. Our sins have not been covered. There is no litter box that needs to get dumped. They've all been taken away. You say, which sins? All sins. Past sins, present sins, future sins. Every single sin has been taken away, washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Come on. Let me ask you a couple of questions. If we have to keep ourselves pure and holy and righteous, and if we have to keep ourselves in the love of God, then just exactly what was it that Jesus' blood did for us? Isn't that a great question? I mean, if I have to keep myself, if I have to do all the gymnastics 
If I have to jump all the ropes, if I have to walk the wire just to stay in alignment with what I think is the way to him, then what was his purpose for the cross? Friends, Jesus' blood doesn't need the assistance of hand sanitizer. His blood worked. His blood was effective. Did Jesus' blood simply make us clean until we get dirty again? Or did Jesus' blood wash us once and for all? Did Jesus' blood merely wash away our sin? Or did Jesus' blood give us a new heart? It's not about just what you got rid of. It's about what He gave you in the same process. Sin was going out, new heart coming in. New heart coming in, sin going out. His sacrifice on the cross was to give us a new heart. To give us a new nature. A heart that is filled with good news. A heart that is filled with the gospel. A heart that has no litter box to dump. A heart that doesn't require the eraser of 1 John 1.9 or the whiteout correction fluid of confession. And I think that's what we get caught in. We get caught up in, if I can just pray and ask God to forgive me, that somehow He'll get out His correction fluid and He'll say, I know this is what you meant, son. So let's just correct this. Friends, it's already been done. It's a finished work. I'm talking about a heart where God has hung the plaque over it that says, God has made clean. You didn't do this. I did this. God has made clean. What a wonderful heart to have. You've got it. I've got it. In John chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, we find these words from Jesus. He said, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me. Notice it doesn't say He cuts off me. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Now look at these words, what He says. He says, "You, Jesus said, You are already clean because of the Word I have spoken to you. Now why would He marry those two thoughts together? that my daddy's the gardener, cutting off branches. And then he says, you're already clean. What are those two thoughts doing together? What they're doing together is he's allowing us to see it's my father who's doing the cleaning. It's my father who's doing the pruning. Didn't he just take us to the point where he said, it's my father who's the gardener. Jesus declared himself to be not just a vine. He said, I'm the true vine. And he said, my father is the gardener, which means the father is the one who takes care of the trees. Little trees, big trees, medium-sized trees. My father is the one who takes care of the trees. A person who is in the profession of cultivating and managing trees is called an arborist. You could call them really a tree surgeon. That's what they do. They're a tree surgeon. You know what they do? They look at a tree and they look at it and they go, I know what it takes to make you a better tree. I know what it takes to make you a healthier tree. As a result, what they do is they know which branches to trim off. And that's all the Father's doing here, friends. I know how to make you so much more robust in your relationship with me and your relationship with other people, your relationship and how you minister. And so an arborist not only knows which branches to take off, they know what season to take them off in. You just can't cut them off in any season you want to. The tree won't do well. Likewise, the Father cuts off every branch in us that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes it so that it will be even more fruitful. There's nothing to be afraid about with these scriptures here. You and I are fruitful. He lifts branches up, friends. He ties them to other ones, the ones that are flagging, the ones that are falling behind, the ones that need support. That's why it's so healthy and why it's so good and important to come together. And so that we can lift up each other's branches. 
Even Jeff and Cindy, as they have people there ministering on their behalf in Haiti, you know what they're doing? They're lifting up the branches that Jeff and Cindy laid there years ago. So it's healthy to have relationships and connections with other people to come and lift up what you've established. You and I are fruitful and you and I are clean because of the word Jesus spoke to us. No other reason. You can't take credit for any of it. Now, when I was thinking about these scriptures over the last couple of days, I couldn't help but think the adjective clean is probably not the best interpretation for this verse. And when Jesus would have spoken into their hearts, he wasn't speaking English, and he didn't use the word clean the way we understand clean, okay? You see, behind our English word clean is the Greek word katharos, which better translates as pure. So when Jesus said you are clean, Jesus was literally saying you are pure, pure. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather buy a bottle of water that's labeled clean drinking water or a bottle of water that's labeled pure drinking water? If that was your only two selections when you walked into the store, your eyes would gravitate, to, and they were the same price, your eyes would gravitate toward pure. There's something about that word, friends. And so when Jesus used this word, and he said, you are already, in our Bible says, clean, Jesus was saying, you are already pure. Beautiful. Because we understand that there's a difference between the filtering process between clean and pure water. You see, I can take a dog that's got 15 different mixes in it. We call them mutts, right? And I can take it to the beauty salon, friends, and I can have that dog washed a million times. You can spray the most expensive perfume under its little armpits. You can put a bow in its hair and everything like that. But I'm telling you, all of that fancy footwork will never turn it into a pure breed. Oh, that dog's going to be clean. Do you see the difference between clean and pure? Pure means perfect. It means there's nothing you can do to improve it. And Jesus said, I have made you pure. How did he do it? Did he anoint every head that came down the line? No, he didn't do that at all. He spoke the word into them. That's why I always tell people the power of God is in his word. Get into his word. And you're going to get delivered from all kinds of mindsets. All these flaming arrows that the enemy wants to throw at us. You're just going to get set free from that stuff. Several years ago when I worked at Motorola, not too far from here, when I worked at Motorola, 11 and a half hour a day, you had to do something to stay busy, right? Other than just putting phones together. And once in a while, I got a couple of good bird whistles in me, right? Once in a while, I just let out a bird whistle. And I start whistling, right? And I watched this one lady. She started looking up in, in there one day. And she thought she heard something. Then she went back to making her phones again. And then when she wasn't looking, I started whistling like a bird again. She started looking up again. She, and then finally she looked up. She said, I keep hearing a bird. I said, you do? <laughs> and then she caught me doing it. And we had a very good laugh after she caught me. I'm not kidding you. The thing she said to me was, I, I really had to chuckle about. She said, wow. And she meant it too. She said, you know, you do that better than a bird. <laughs> That's what she said to me. <laughs> we had a good little laugh. And I thought, I thought, wow, that's impossible. That's the bird's native language, right? Friends, to add anything to Jesus' finished work, in an effort to make ourselves pure is like trying to outwhistle a bird. It's just impossible. You can fail at something and then you can go stand in a hot shower until the water runs cold and you'll be no cleaner in the Father's eyes. I've said it before, I'll say it again, you can scrub yourself raw with a Brillo pad and a bar of lava soap and yet you will be no purer in the Father's eyes. You see, that's what religion tries to do. It addresses the outside. It addresses the performance where we have flaws, where we have odors. It addresses that. 
But we've already learned that Jesus said, I've made you pure. That means in the spirit man, there's no way to improve. Hot showers won't do it. You're as pure as you're ever going to get. Jesus said, you are already clean. In other words, what he was saying is you are already pure because of the word I have spoken to you. Who was he talking to? He was talking to his disciples. Well, let me ask you a question. What was the word that Jesus had previously spoken to his disciples that he's referencing? The word that Jesus is referring to is the word that he had spoken to their hearts two chapters earlier in John chapter 13. It's the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. This is where he spoke the word into them. John 13, verses 10 and 11. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Look what he says, their whole body is clean. Now, Jesus is not talking about personal hygiene here, friends. He's using this as a metaphor to drive home a spiritual truth. You're already clean. He says, and you are clean. In other words, here's that word again, and you are pure. You are pure, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. Who was Jesus referring to when he said that not every one of you is clean? He was referring to Judas Iscariot. Friends, Judas wasn't clean one moment and then dirty the next, okay? You know, like a two-year-old with a piece of chocolate cake. Clean one moment, dirty the next, right? No. The sad fact is Judas was never clean. Judas had never placed his trust in Christ. Oh, he had a fascination with Christ. Oh, he liked it because he got to carry the bag and he got to help himself to the bag, the money bag, anytime he needed something he was stealing. But he never put his trust in Christ. His actions prove that. The scriptures call Judas a thief. Jesus called him a betrayer. When they came to get him in the garden, he said, here comes my betrayer. Jesus called him a devil in, in another place in the Bible. Friends, believers don't go from clean to unclean because of their behavior. We have been cleansed and made perfect by one sacrifice, that sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Mount Calvary. Jesus said, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. If you know anything about trees, you have the trunk of the tree, and then you have the branches, you have branchlets, you have limbs, you have twigs. There's all kinds of components to a tree. This is not talking about cutting the whole tree down, friends. This is talking about trimming this tree. And then Jesus says, you are already clean. That means, again, you are already pure. No eraser needed. No whiteout needed. No litter box to dump. He said, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Next scriptures. Now I love this one. It says, remain in me and I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Now, the word remain shows up more in that fourth verse than any other word. It's mentioned four times. If it's mentioned that many times, I think Jesus is trying to drive home a point, don't you? The word remain easily gets misinterpreted by believers because it sounds so conditional. Some versions say, if you remain in me, I will remain in you. It sounds so conditional. Well, it is conditional, but not for cleanliness. It is conditional, but not for salvation. It is conditional for bearing fruit. That's all. What is the context of the scripture? Bearing fruit. It's conditional for bearing fruit. I want you to see how this word remain is interpreted from the actual Greek language. Look at this. To remain means to remain, abide. In reference to place, it means to sojourn, tarry, not to depart, to continue to be present, to be held, kept continually. And then in reference to time, it means to continue to be, not to perish, to last, endure, of persons to survive, to live, live in me. That's what remain means. It means to dwell. It means to abide. It means to live. And then a reference to state or condition to remain as one. 
Come on. We are one with Christ. We remain one with Christ. You can't get out. There is no zipper between Christ and you. You are sealed by the Spirit of God. It says to remain as one, not to become another or different, to wait for, await one. Friends, if anyone tries to tell you, after looking at that list right there, if anyone tries to tell you that you are unclean because of your lifestyle, your choices, your habits, whatever it may be, that message itself is contaminated, not you. The message is contaminated. Their message does not come from the undiluted gospel. I'm talking about the message God has made clean. Because we have become acquainted with, this is what happens. We get used to stuff. We become acquainted with it. We get so accustomed to infection. We just concede that everything and everyone can become corrupted or infected. Friends, to concede is the opposite of standing firm. And how many times throughout the scriptures do we see repeatedly that we are to stand firm? We are to stand established. Stand firm on what, you ask? How about starting with God's promises? How about starting with what Jesus said? You are pure. Stand firm on that promise when someone comes along and says, you're unclean. It doesn't even have to be a person. Your own mindset, your own thoughts can come along and say, you're impure. You're unclean. You stand firm on God's promises. Jesus himself said it. He said, I have made you clean. I have made you pure. Beautiful. The scriptures just revealed to us that God has made every believer clean, friends. That means that in our spirit, man, come on, that's the part of you you can't locate. A doctor can't take a scalpel and cut it out of you. It's a part of you that's hidden from the world, but it's the part where God abides, where God dwells in you. It's your nature, your very nature. And as long as you have breath, as long as you have life, he will continue to dwell in there. That means our spirit man can never be infected, contaminated, compromised, hacked, tarnished, stolen, polluted, disgraced, discredited, or corrupted. Come on. Our spirit man can never be any of those things. Never happened. How did we become so protected? Come on. Ask yourself, how did we become so protected? Well, it was through a one-time bath in the blood of Jesus Christ. And by uniting us with the Lord, He has put a seal around us that cannot be penetrated. Now, the exercise of our liberties may have earthly consequences. You won't get me to disagree with that. And the misappropriations of the gifts and callings of God may get us into a hot mess at times. But none of that changes the truth that God has made clean. We do not call unclean that which God has made clean. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 through 17, we find these words. This is the Apostle Paul writings. He says, but you were washed. I love that word. I love it. You were washed, it says. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When the Apostle Paul used that word washed, he used the exact same word that Jesus used when he told his disciples they were clean. And then he says, everything is permissible for me, but not all things are beneficial. Do you understand that scripture? That there is nothing in the world that you can go out and do and miss heaven. I don't care how heinous it is but it's not going to be beneficial for you. I can tell you that much. So don't let that be your motivation because I'm forgiven. No, friends, this is about relationship with Him. This is about falling in love with Him. This is about enjoying His presence. This is not about just a ticket to heaven someday. This is not about just missing hell. This is a relationship, a vibrant friendship with Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit. So he says, everything is permissible for me but not all things are beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, 
but I will not be enslaved by anything. And that's what he's getting at. He's saying, look, everything's permissible, but there are some things that are going to put me into bondage. He said, I will not be enslaved by anything and brought under its power, allowing it to control me. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11 tells us that we were washed. Washed by who? Jesus Christ. Washed when? When we were saved. Washed from what? Sin and unrighteousness. The word wash comes from a compound Greek word. I want you to see it up here. It's apolau. Apolau is two words. Apo, which means away from. Lau means a complete bath. It means to cleanse the whole man. So apolau, when it's put together, it means we have had a complete spiritual bath and our sins have been taken away from us. Friends, I can't make this stuff up in a million years. I just go look and probe and go, Daddy, what does this mean? What does this mean? It's like, are you kidding me? This is awesome. What are we washed from? Our sins and unrighteousness. We've had a complete spiritual bath that took place at salvation and our sins have been washed away. They have been taken away from us. And that's what the context is talking about. Continuing with Paul's thoughts there, he says, you say food's for the stomach and stomach for the food and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord will be one with him in spirit. I have a question for you. What in the world just happened? What happened here? I mean, this passage of Scripture just went from declaring how clean we are and how washed we are and how sanctified we are and how justified we are and how pure we are in Christ to talking about sexual immorality and sleeping with a prostitute. Did this scripture transition to warn us about a sin that is so paramount, so heinous, that it strips away our purity? Because it's kind of all in that context right there. All this, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, and all of a sudden you're talking about a prostitute. What's going on here? Is this a warning or a commandment for us not to break? No, sir. No, ma'am. These scriptures are talking about design and purpose. That's what the Holy Spirit said to me when I said, what's going on with these scriptures, Holy Spirit? He said, look at them closely. It's about design and purpose. The stomach was designed with food in mind. How many of you know we got a great creator? And when he put together the stomach, I, I'm always amazed. I'm, I'm amazed by the stomach. I, I really am that the acid in there will destroy anything you eat, yet it doesn't destroy the stomach itself. The very thin little lining of the stomach. Because God made this thing. And God knew what He had designed it for. And God knew what He had purposed it for. The stomach was designed with food in mind, and food was purposed for the stomach. This is each of their designs and purposes. Now, in the same manner our bodies were designed and purpose for the lord not prostitutes do you see the connection now that's what they were designed for to bring him glory and praise and honor and to be thankful for what he's done for us not prostitutes you will never feel clean in the bosom of a prostitute but the greater truth found in these scriptures is this. A prostitute isn't filthy enough to strip away your union with the Lord. A prostitute is not filthy enough to take away the way he washed you. Do you see? He reached down in the cutter and he said, I'll show you something really bad. 
I just told you I washed you. I just told you you were sanctified. I'll take something that is awful. And it doesn't change who you are. In fact, it says you become one with the prostitute. And in the same way, he said, this is how it is with me. When I come into your heart, there's a union that takes place. We are one in union with Christ. God has made clean through the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Amen to that, buddy. Come on now. How many of you would agree with me that vinegar has a pungent odor and an extremely sour and bitter taste? My wife likes to drink vinegar and water, and I can't stand it, man. But I mean, you just take straight raw vinegar, pungent, bitter, sour, it's a smell that, and a taste that we never forget, isn't it? Absolutely. It's a taste that can be actually quite stomach-turning, to be honest with you. And as pungent, and as sour, and as bitter as vinegar is, how many of you know that if you were to mix 10 gallons of vinegar into 1 million gallons of water, you would no longer be able to smell or taste the vinegar? Would you like to know why? It's because of the 100,000 gallons to one gallon ratio. You see that? The odor of the vinegar would have been subjugated and its taste would have been hidden by that much water. To help you better understand this equation, if you take an Olympic swimming pool, I mean, look at the length of that thing. About 170 feet long. I forget how many feet wide, six, eight feet deep. Take an Olympic swimming pool. It holds about 500,000 gallons of water. Let's use the same ratio. Let's put in five gallons of vinegar into that Olympic pool and let's stir it all around. The sheer volume of water would swallow up the bitterness of the vinegar. It's like adding a little water sometimes to a cup of coffee. How many of you know you do two things? You dilute the strength of the coffee and you dilute the temperature of the coffee, right? You say, Pastor Mark, I hope you've got a point behind all this. And I do. I do. I take you down some roads, don't I? God speaks to me in pictures. He speaks to me in ways I can understand it so I can convey it to you. I'm not here to tell you little cute little stories. I just tell you what he tells me so that we can explain a deeper truth, okay? All right. If that equation is true, then how much truer is it that Jesus' blood, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, and Jesus' righteousness is greater than our pungent, bitter and sour, sinful ways. Come on. How much truer would that be? Let me say it another way. My blood type is O positive. And if you were to fill the Olympic pool with 500,000 gallons of my blood type and then pour in five gallons of vinegar, do you know that blood that's in that pool would still be fit for my veins? Why? Because it's been overwhelmed. It's been subjugated in a way by the sheer volume. Understanding that might help us to understand the following verses. I want you to see these verses. Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. For if by the trespass of one man, who's that one man? Come on. Adam. That's Adam. For by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant Provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reigning life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act, that's Christ, friends, one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For justice through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Next scriptures. Look at these now, friends. Come on. And this is where it's at, friends. It says, but where sin increased. Come on. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life to Jesus Christ our Lord. What are these scriptures telling us? 
They're telling us that our pungent attitudes, our bitter behaviors, and our sour choices never change our righteous position in Christ. Furthermore, our vinegar moments never alter the effectiveness of Jesus' blood. But the greater truth found in these scriptures is that we were designed and we were destined to reign in life. That's what these scriptures are all building up to. Later on, they will tell you, you were designed and destined to reign in life. He's laying the foundation with these scriptures so that he can tell you that in a couple of seconds. Destined, purposed to reign in life. In other words, we have a greater purpose in life than just trying to find loopholes in God's grace so that we can gratify the desire of our flesh. These scriptures are telling us that His blood offers us the abundant, come on, the abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness that can never sour, can never decrease, and can never be contaminated. Friends, you can take a bath in hand sanitizer and you will be no cleaner before God. God has made clean through a single act of His grace. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we find these words. The Apostle Paul says, what shall we say then? What he's basically saying there is he's saying, okay, I know we're going to get some feedback. I know we're going to get some emails. I know we're going to get some private messages. I know we're going to get some text messages. I know we're going to get confronted with this. So I'll just cut it off right here. What shall we say then? You know, the scriptures tell us that we need to be prepared to give an answer to those that are coming to us seeking Christ, wanting to understand this gospel of grace. So the Apostle Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He says, by no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Friends, listen to me carefully. Sinning because we're under grace, is as foolish as putting paper plates in the dishwasher. <laughs> How many of you know that the plates are going to fall apart? And sin causes lives to fall apart, friends. Everything from marriages to their bodies to reputation to your finances, you write it in there. And although sin can never separate us from the love of God, that doesn't mean that sin can't separate us from our family. It doesn't mean that sin can't separate us from loving people, from feeling like loving people, from joy. Sin will strip away your joy. Sin will strip away your peace. Sinning just so that we can prove that God's grace is greater than our sin is as ridiculous as cutting my hand off just to make sure that the tourniquet in my emergency kit is working right. I mean, you know, they're just foolish. Think about it. I'm, tr I'm trying to drive home this point. There's no need to sin. Stop it. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you in that situation. Just because we're under grace, we don't do it. Just knowing we're forgiven. Yes, we're forgiven. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Come on. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, those previous scriptures, I talked about being one with the Lord, being united with the Lord. And here's your promise. If you're united with the Lord, we will be raised in resurrection life, friends. For we know that our old self was crucified. Come on there. We were crucified with him so that the body, you know, the one that went after the prostitute, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We've been set free from sin. Let me ask you, have you died? Yes, crucified with Christ. Were you buried with him? Yes, buried with him in baptism, that's right. Were you raised with him from the dead? Absolutely. 
raised in resurrection life and power. Are you a slave to sin? No. Why? Because we were set free from sin. Friends, grace is powerful. It doesn't need any helpers. It just requires our acceptance and our cooperation. That's all. You see, when the gospel of grace is diluted through the vinegar-soaked sponge of dead works, performance, and conditional security, you know what it does? It archives the power of grace. You see, when something is archived, it's not lost. It's just hidden from sight. When you archive something, you don't delete it. You just hide it so it's not always in front of you. So when something is archived, it's not lost. It's just hidden from our sight, which because we're such visual people, emotional people, it almost feels like one and the same. And that's why so many Christians believe that they're a sinner one moment and a saint the next. They believe that they are dirty and clean simultaneously forsaking the truth that God has made clean through grace by faith alone. They believe that they are darkness and light at the same time. And all of this bewitching works to confuse believers, not lose their salvation, but shipwreck their faith. The reason I continually promote the finished work of grace is because we have this tendency to forget basic principles, none greater than that our relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, which was established upon grace through faith. In Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 15, we find some of my closing scriptures. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius! Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it? Lord, he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Very specific vision, as you can tell. All the details. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. Isn't that just like you and me? <laughs> I think that verse is hilarious. He goes up on the roof to pray. I don't know what that looks like exactly, climbing up on that old straw-hudded roof. He climbs up on that roof, and he starts praying for about two minutes, and all of a sudden his belly's growling. He's thinking about the things he's got to do at work. You know, this is what we do. This is what happens to us when we get bombarded, when we start to pray. You think there was one time the enemy would just leave us alone, right? The natural things would just leave us alone, but it happened to Peter. It said he became hungry. Well, God is orchestrating here, friends. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. In other words, he has acute awareness of everything that's going on. He's in this trance, if you will. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Next scripture. Look at this, friends. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time, and it said, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Friends, 
Cornelius, the centurion, the scriptures just told us that he was a devout follower of God. He was visited by an angel, maybe the incarnate Christ. And the angel instructed Cornelius to send his men to Joppa to bring back a man named Peter so that his entire household could listen to everything the Lord commanded Peter to tell them. And when Peter arrived, Cornelius bowed down and fell at Peter's feet in reverence, but Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. In Acts chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, just a couple of scriptures up, it says this. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are all aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. When did God show him that? Ah, now we see what the sheet of unclean animals was all about. This isn't that little menu they give you in the hospital that you plan for a day or two in advance what you're going to eat you know, for the next three or four meals, friends. God is showing him something much more profound. Friends, this quizzical narrative is not about a restriction of what Peter could or could not eat. It was a revelation that both Jew and Gentile were accepted in the beloved and that none could be called unclean. You see, Peter's vision was probably the only thing on his mind during the 40-mile walk from Joppa to Caesarea. It was on that journey that he discovered that he had a residue from the old programming. He had a residue from the old covenant that was abiding in him, that was still taking space in his mind. Do you see how easy this is? He's telling God, no, I'm not going to eat these unclean animals. He's born again, spirit-filled at this point in time. But this residue from the law is still stuck in his soul. And God is saying, look, I'm going to build my church. Remember, Peter, I told you, I'm going to build my church upon the fact that you know who I am and I know who you are. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against this thing. But we're going to build it. We're going to build it right. And we've got to get some of this residue that's stuck on the inside of you, out of you. Finally, the words of Jesus made sense to Peter. He was able to connect the dots. Oh, that's what Jesus meant when he said, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit of itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide, live, dwell, take up residence in me, friends. Live there forever. Be sealed by the Holy Spirit. Friends, do you see the power of the undiluted gospel of grace? It's not just for you. It's for the people that you encounter in life. It's the people that God assigns on your travels and your walk, wherever you go. Cornelius was a Gentile convert, a God-fearing man. The Bible calls him a praying man and a generous man. But all he was familiar with up to that point was Judaism, a diluted gospel. Can you imagine? How refreshing. Can you imagine how liberating it must have been for Cornelius when the Apostle Peter shared that he and his entire household were all made pure through the blood of Christ apart from the law. Friends, through the blood of Jesus Christ, God has made clean. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. 
Believers are not the ones that keep themselves sanctified, justified, holy, righteous, cleansed, pure, or washed. God has made clean by grace through faith. Our sins and unrighteousness were so much more than diluted. They were subjugated by the blood of the Lamb and taken away once for all. Our inner man can never be infected, contaminated, compromised, or hacked. Our inner man can never be tarnished, stolen, corrupted, polluted, or diluted. He is the perfect man sealed by the blood of Jesus through the good news of the gospel. Friends, repeated confession of sins and begging the Father for forgiveness by a son or a daughter of God is not a requirement under the new covenant. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 was written again to the unbelieving agnostic. You see, it is the confession of sins that allows the unbeliever to enter into salvation. But once salvation has come, sin is no longer our master. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. We are not in the sin management business. I don't manage your sin. I don't manage my sin. We're not in the sin management business. Our litter box dumping days are history. Our erasers have worn down and our whiteout correction fluid bottle has run dry. We have come to the end of self-effort and we look to Christ alone. We sang it today in Christ alone. And when we blow it, we don't have to fall apart like a paper plate in the dishwasher. We just simply say, Daddy, I'm sorry. Daddy, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help me to listen better. Help me to listen to your heart. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, help me to make better choices. Friends, may I remind us of the words that Jesus used when he said, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Those who have had a bath, that means a complete bath, only need to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. Friends, there are going to be occasions when we feel like we've lost our spiritual footing. Occasions when we feel like our sin has increased. How do we handle those moments? Is it with a Brillo pad and a bar of lava soap? No. How about a bathtub full of sanitizer? No. How about a long, hot shower? No! We go back to the Word. What do the Scriptures say? They say where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Oh, there's going to be times when our attitudes are a little pungent. Times when we're a little sharp. Times when our behaviors are a little bitter. Times when our choices are a bit sour. There are going to be times when we've blown it so bad that we'll even stoop so low as to call ourselves impure. What do we do then? Pastor Mark, you do the same thing that I do. In the quietness of those moments, I listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I hear Him saying, do not call anything unclean that God has made clean. Father, we thank you so much. We thank you for this gospel of grace, the undiluted gospel of grace. We thank you, Father, that we don't need man-made things to make us clean. We're also very thankful that there's nothing in this world that is so dirty that could get us dirty again. So, Father, thank you that we can take that condemnation off of us and we can rest in the finished work of the cross. We thank you, Jesus, that we are one with you. We are a union with you, sealed by the precious Holy Spirit. 
I thank you, Father, that Jesus said that we were pure. That means we are perfect. That means we can't improve upon what he has done for us. We ask that you allow and help us to bring those truths and graces up and out of our spirit into our minds. We can see even with the apostle Peter, who was a man that was filled with the Holy Spirit, who was a man where Pentecost began the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with tongues and fire. We see even a man like that, powerful man of God who preached and 3,000 souls came to Christ. We even see that he had residue of the old covenant trapped on the inside of him. And you had to give him a vision. It wasn't about food. It was about people. It was about Jew, Gentile, and all the whole world that everybody that can come to Christ will receive the words from you that you are pure. You are clean. Nothing can contaminate you. Nothing can hack you. Nothing can hijack you. You are as pure as the driven snow. So Father, we thank you so much that we rest in this great truth, this great honor. Jesus did it all. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our life. Jesus, thank you. For it was by that sacrifice on the cross, when you would say those words, it is finished. You knew in your own heart, God has made clean once and for all. In Jesus' name, amen.